Well, with all that God is up to, he also wants to speak to us today from the book of Exodus. So I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Exodus in chapter 20. We're coming back into our look at the the book of Exodus, our Free to Follow series. And here we find the people of God. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. God has just spoken to them and told them the Ten Commandments that echo throughout Scripture in so many ways. And here, in the following chapters, it kind of plays out what those laws mean in practical living and how he wants his kingdom to be uh, lived out as a people. So in light of that, we're only going to look at verses 22 through 26 and not do all three or four chapters, really. So uh, let's go to Exodus 20, starting in verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people, Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, there are some interesting laws uh, in North Carolina. Dean opened with this last week. I figured this may as well be part two. Um, Some of the laws, one of the ones Dean brought up last week had to do with uh, how it says you cannot use an elephant to plow cotton fields. Uh, which is true. Apparently, it's on the law book somewhere. But uh, I found a couple other ones. Uh, one is actually pretty good. One said, no rollerblading on the highway. Uh, it's probably a pretty good thing to do, right? S- stay clear. Uh, but then there's this one. It said, notify the city before you enter in a car. Notify the city before you enter in a car. No doubt these laws are are funny, and some of them even sound weird. But if you were to dive deeper into them, there's actually a reasonable explanation behind it. So, for example, this one with notify the city before you enter in a car, well, you can imagine it dates back to a time when cars were not always around, right? You had horses. And so if a car comes rumbling into town, it can spook the horses. The horses bolt, cause all kinds of chaos. So that's why that law was in place. Uh, I just bring this up because uh, it's a little bit of what we encounter today. If we were to sit here and read uh, 20, chapter 20, verse 22, all the way through chapter 23, verse 9, you would come across all kinds of laws that maybe sound even somewhat wrong to you. Uh, You're wondering why these things go on or why is God making commands this way? Uh, It could be really interesting And so these laws can sometimes sound odd. But this section, and the section we're focusing on, just to be clear, is Exodus 20, 22 through 23, verse 9. So we're going to jump around a little bit. 
But this section comes on the heels of the Ten Commandments, like Dean said, and it deals with the application of the Ten Commandments. Uh, These laws address how to apply the Ten Commandments in Israel's specific theocratic um, society. This section is a descriptive, is basically the descriptive law based on the presumptive law, the presumptive law of the Ten Commandments. And so God gives them these descriptive laws. So, for example, if you were to look at Exodus 22, verse 1, it says, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Uh, I bring this up because this, this law deals with restitution. And so what's happening here is the Ten Commandments are being applied to their day in. Stealing is wrong, going back to the Ten Commandments, and there should be restitution. So that's, a, that's what we're seeing here. The Ten Commandments are the principles that are to be applied in Israel's context. And what we are encountering this morning is what's called the Covenant Code, this huge section, the Covenant Code. And it's an application of the Ten Commandments in this specific social context of Israel as a nation in the ancient Near East. Now, so then, great, Josh, none of this applies, right? Let's move on. Let's go to chapter 23, verse 10, and let's move on. Well, no, wait a minute. There are things that do apply to us and things that don't. There are some things that we can distill from this because these commands in and of themselves are derivative of the Ten Commandments. God is basically helping his society, helping his, the nation of Israel function in the day-to-day activities. But let me try to help you understand this. This stuff does apply. In the Old Testament, a lot of times how we think about the laws, how we understand the laws, is that the law breaks down into three types. There's the moral law, there's the ceremonial law, and then there's the civil law. All right, those three. Now, the moral law uh, are those things, those elements in the law found primarily in the Ten Commandments, and they're of permanent application. They don't go away. So that's why, for example, later on, if we were reading through the book of Ephesians, we come to chapter 4, and Paul says, don't steal. Instead, the person that steals, they should give. That's because the moral law is always there. It's not going away. It'll never go away. But then there's the ceremonial law. And here, think of all the sacrifices. Think of sacrifices like the burnt offering, which was this picture of where they took the whole animal, put the whole animal on the altar. The whole animal is consumed because it was supposed to be a picture of how I, as the worshiper, need to be fully consumed, fully devoted to the Lord in worship and service of Him. And so they had this sacrificial system But yet, what we learn from the New Testament is that the blood of bulls and goats never takes away sins. You see, it was a picture. It was a foreshadowing of Christ, the ultimate perfect sacrifice. And so that goes away with the New Testament. But then you have the civil law. You have the civil law, which is basically the application of the moral law in society. It's taking that moral law and weaving it into society and seeing it lived, lived out. And there's a good bit of this in our section this morning. The civil law was a model of legal arrangements uh, within society. The, it was mitigating sin. You see, God is working to restrain evil in, even in society. And the civil law was like a stopgap to restrain further sin. 
in society and help society uphold goodness and truth. That's why, for example, having a law in this country that says murder is wrong, right? It's a, it's a good thing <laughs> that murder is wrong. It's a stopgap even for our society. Now, God's giving of the civil law, let me be clear here, God's giving of the civil law is not necessarily the model for every civil system. Uh, it was for Israel as a theocracy instituted by God. The moral law, yes, absolutely. The civil law, no. You see, uh, you'll notice that with the coming of Christ, things changed. Instead of one theocratic ethnic nation, we are now many ethnic people of many nations under the one God, the one King, that is Christ Jesus. And so that's why, for example, when we turn in our Bibles to a passage like 1 Corinthians 5, and you see Paul uh, saying this kind of adultery shouldn't go on in the church, not at all. But Paul doesn't estimate, he doesn't say that. But rather, he says he needs to be punished. He needs to be excommunicated so that he can be regained. I say this because the moral law continues, but the ceremonial and the civil law do not. Overall, the ceremonial and the civil law were for the duration of the Old Testament until Christ came. There were mercy. And today, the people of God were not this mono-ethnic uh, theocracy, nor are we to be one. We are, as followers of Christ, citizens of many different nations under the one King, Christ. Now, that's a mouthful. I realize I had to take you through all that. That feels like you're probably going back to grade school, and but just thanks for hanging with me through that, because it's a distinction that uh, is important for us to understand, is because sometimes if you were to sit down and read this, I mean, I just think about this last night, being with our be with our friends in our neighborhood, if I was to say, here's Christianity, and open it up to them, start reading it to them, they'd be like, what is this? You know, because it can be jolting, th these kind of laws. How do we make sense of this? How do we, how do we put it in these proper categories? Um, so this section can be confusing, because you and I, we didn't grow up in the ancient Near East. And it's going to be hard for us, especially as we read uh, verses about slavery. And what's hard for us to understand is that back then, was actually being espoused in this passage would have been countercultural compared to the surrounding ancient Near Eastern nations and how they treated uh, slaves. For example, if you look at the Code of Hammurabi, which a lot of you have probably read about when you were in grade school, maybe you don't remember it, but it's, <coughs> it's around the same time as, as this passage. But what's interesting is how they treated, how the Code of Hammurabi uh, told you to treat slaves and far different than how the scriptures here are telling us to treat slaves. Uh, but more about this in a bit. The big picture is this. God is in covenant with his people. He is concerned with his law, how it's applied in the day in, day out of ordinary life. And God cares about the details of everyday life. He cares about his people. He cares about, which means he cares about you and I as we go through our daily activities, the day in, day out, the moments that seem not really important or seem passing, meaning, meaningless maybe. God cares about all those moments. And he cares enough to provide these stop gaps in order to restrain sin in Israelite society. And this is even helpful for today. 
because we even see God's moral law woven within our own society, and we see its benefit. Because God's moral law, following God's moral law, is the way things work best. That's the way God created his world to work. He's the creator of it. And so these laws, things work best when we follow his commands. God's people are to live according to the law as his holy and set-apart people. How so? Love God, love others. This is something Dean talked about last week as we wrapped up the Ten Commandments. We went to Matthew 22, and we talked in, in the greatest commandment of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The two greatest commandments, love God, love neighbor. And as we've gone through the Ten Commandments, we've seen that commandments one through four have to do with love God. And commandments five through ten, love neighbor. And so the same can be said even here as we are talking about God applying the Ten Commandments and helping Israel apply the Ten Commandments in the daily lives. All these commandments you, could probably, you can break down into love God, love others. Love God, love one another. And so that's kind of how I want to frame it as we talk about these things. Love God, love one another. Let's look at the first thing, love God. Uh, the passage that Dean read in Exodus 20, starting in verse 22, uh, this first section here, you know what's interesting is as this section opens up and coming off the Ten Commandments, uh, God is referring, uh, even as he opens up this passage, uh, that, that God is referring to the first two commandments. He's referring to the first two commandments where he said, you shall have no other gods before me and you shall not make any graven images. He says it in he refers to it in verse um, 23 there. You can see, you says, You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. Why is this significant? Because God is setting, setting the stage. He's starting at the beginning where the Ten Commandments start, right? That we are to worship God. We're not to make any graven images. This is where God is starting. It's proper worship. It's living that puts him front and center, that he is our highest aim. And so God is starting there. And that's instructive for us. Uh, this, this is really instructive for us because as we think about living rightly, as we think about the moments of our lives, is God front and center for our decisions? Does God factor into our moments of daily life? Does he... Is he in our periphery, or is he there kind of front and center, helping us as we go through our days? Are we actually looking to him? Easy to push God to the side. The tyranny of the urgent, worries, cares, concerns, difficulties, you name it, right? Those things get in our way, and pretty soon God kind of gets slid to the side. And we're not really consciously thinking about how to put him first as we're going throughout our days. So easy to do. Um, but what is it like for you? What does that look like for you as you go through your, your days, your day in, your day out? Because God is worthy of worship. He wants our worship. And so too many times it's easy for us just to push him aside and bow down at the different altars of our lives instead of bowing down to God himself. God wants his people to live as he has made them, 
He's made us to be holy, to be set apart. Um, as it says later on in chapter 22, verse 31, you shall be consecrated to me. In other words, God has set them apart. I love this picture because this communicates that God has taken a people out of the world. He's kind of picked them up and he's set them aside for himself to be his own. He's provided for them. He's protected them. And now he's expecting them to respond with worship to him. Out of all the peoples in the world, treasured possession. And that's what he's done with them. That's what he's done with you and I. And so how can we not? Well, this first section in uh, chapter 20, verses 22 through 26, kind of opens with love God, focusing on him first and foremost. But then these other sections, which I'm going to fly through, and this is basically a flyover, uh, I can kinda, we can kind of categorize some of these sections in the following chapters. And it basically has a lot to do with loving others, loving one another. Uh, the first place I want to stop is chapter, and you'll see here what's something that catches you right off the bat. And we have to understand Israel's context. Remember, Israel is coming out of Egypt, out of slavery, and they knew what this experience was like. They knew what slavery was like. They knew what it was like to be forced to do it. They knew what it was like to be beaten. They knew what it was like uh, to be treated harshly, even as a second-class person. They knew all of those things. They learned that cruelty. And it would have been, you can imagine coming out and now trying to constitute as a people and have this operate among them. They don't know what to do and how to do it. And so God gives them these instructions. He gives them these guidelines. Israel was to be different than Egypt and the surrounding nations. Uh, slaves in Israel were actually treated the better, better ancient Near Eastern cultures. Uh, if you compared this section, uh, like I said before, with the Code of Hammurabi, you would see noticeably noticeable difference. Slaves were protected by God's word, and they could not be oppressed. They had rights, and they could even become a part of families with rights and positions of trust. And notice what God says in chapter 21, verse 2. It's kind of shocking. In 21, verse 2, we read, When you buy a Hebrew slave... He shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. It's kind of shocking, isn't it? Don't you just feel like this immediate reaction to it? Like we're in the 21st century here, and you're reading something like this, going, really? How's this, how's this possible? But I want you to see something here. This has to do with a form of indenture, uh, to use that term. Basically, an Israelite uh, sells himself, or even a family member, into slavery in order to repay a debt that incurred either because they're poor or because they committed some crime. Sometimes that took place and they had to pay back their debt. But I want you to notice something, that it was not lifelong, and it's also tied to the Sabbath principle, uh, the fourth commandment, where it says where the slave is supposed to be freed in the sabbatical year. You see, I, I'm saying instantly go to what we've grown up with in this world, the kind of slavery we've seen. And this is not at all. God does not have in mind the kind of slavery that we have known and seen and experienced in the United States. It's not the kind of slavery. I'll show you. Look down at 21 verse 16. You can see where God outrightly uh, condemns it. 
He says in verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. That's serious. Man stealing. That's the stuff we're guilty of here in the States. That's the stuff we've been guilty of. But that's not the stuff that God is saying is what this is. It's not the same thing. So that's important for us to understand that God never condone anything like that. But it doesn't necessarily answer all our questions. I wish we had a lot, a lot of time on this. But I'm, I'm bringing this up because God cares. Look at chapter 20, or look at verse 7 of chapter 21, because we read something that's also jolting, where it says a man sells his daughter as a slave. And as I said before, this was done when families were struggling in order so they could uh, provide for their families. Um, but this was conditional slavery. I want you to see that, conditional. And this girl is not a slave girl in the general sense, but she is better protected, and she's not to be treated like other slaves. Verse 8, for example, presupposes that she will marry her master or, her, or his son. And protection is in there. Protection is in all of these verses. And it's probably hard for us to see it. Uh, you'll notice in verse 8 that if he doesn't like her, she is to go free. And if she marries his son, she is to be treated like a daughter in verse 9. You see, I'm bringing up these things because in these verses 7 through 11, what's clear actually is a clear protection. And remember, it's a stopgap. You see, it was to also discourage the one who was taking the slave not to mistreat to treat them properly, to treat them well. And so there's actually uh, a discouragement for improper behavior even against the slaves. And the point here, the reason I'm bringing this up is protection. God cares about his people. He wants them to live well. He wants them to treat people well because that's who he is. That's his character. But God, you'll see, go, moving on, he also values life. He also values life. If you look at chapter 21, verses 12 through 27, you can see when you see these capital offenses and how death is required, and you're thinking, how's that valuing life? Well, it's because man is made in the image of God. You remember when we talked through the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, and how God, it's because God so values life that he requires life for life. And so he says in verse 12 here, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. God values life. And this section assumes the value of life when it comes to murder and assault because we're all made in his image. So much so that I want to point out an example that's usually an example that is um, one that can seem confusing as you're wondering, does God really not value life? You look with me at verses 22 through 25 of chapter 21. You see this case of, uh, sadly, I guess this case had come up enough that it actually needs to be put in the scriptures. But it says this, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, 
burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. I bring this up because some think, oh, well, she was hit, her children came out, they must, of course, they're dead, and but yet God doesn't require life. And that's not necessarily so. You see, the thought here is that these are premature births, but yet the, the children are fine, so to speak. But what God is saying here is that he so values life that if there is harm, whether it's the child, whether it's the woman, that it is life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, etc. God cares life, and he wants them to put a high value on it. He also wants them to take responsibility. You see that later with different laws on restitution and uh, when things are when things are damaged under your care. If you've ever watched someone's goldfish and they die on your watch, you're surely probably going to replace it before you get back to them and, and tell them about it. You know, that's just part of, you know, how we see that taking shape, even in our culture. It's a good thing that we take responsibility uh, for things that are done and that happen under our care. But then look with me in chapter 22. Look with me in chapter 22, verses 16 and 17. And here we see, not only does God care about people, not only does he value life, not only does he want them to take responsibility, but sexual purity is important. He wants his people not to uh, engage in it in, in, a, in, a, in a wrong way. Sometimes people mis- misunderstand verse 16 of chapter 22, where it says, if a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged to be married and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Now, at first take, you're thinking, okay, is God condoning sexual assault? Is God saying that's okay? He's just tolerating it, and now here's the law for it. Actually, it's not. It's, uh, this is not a rape situation or a sexual assault situation, but actually the term means more of persuaded or enticed. So in other words, the woman was willing. The woman was not um, raped or sexually assaulted in any way. And what happens, though, is because God places such a high value on sexual purity, the union that Uh, is only supposed to take place within marriage, that even if they have sex, notice she's not pregnant. It's not because she got pregnant. It's because they they are supposed to marry. But yet he also creates guidelines so that if he refuses, there is this thing called bride price. Now, don't misunderstand that either. God is not saying we are buying people, that she is only worth this much, and they're haggling over a price for her. That's not what this has to do with, but rather um, Israel's economy was a gift economy. So usually she came with a dowry and he came with a bride price. And so usually there is an exchange of sorts that took place. Not, and it was for, it was to actually um, for the loss of their daughter, basically, is why the bride price was, but it was a reciprocal gift economy that took place. But don't miss all this. What's important here is the sexual purity. The conjugal union is reserved purely for marriage. And so God values it so much. God wants his people to be holy, holy in their love for him and holy for one another. And God cares for his people. 
You see this especially how he cares for the needy in chapter 22, 21 through 27. And also in chapter 23, God cares about truth and justice. You see, he wants his people to live this way because he's for the needy. He's the God who is compassionate and he wants his people to be compassionate. And so he tells them in chapter 22, you know, to care for the widow, care for the fatherless, care for the sojourner. And maybe that's a foreign term, but uh, I think I got a good example for us in our church. We actually have sojourners in our midst. Uh, I would consider Pancho a sojourner right now as he is with us from Chile for a little bit. And then eventually at one point he will go back to Chile. Um, also, maybe when you were in college, you uh, went to a different church while you're in college and you went and you worshiped there and they kind of took you in for a time before you were back home. Uh, we had that, those kinds of things going on, but God's just encouraging his people to be merciful, be compassionate, uh, care for them, care for even the sojourners in your midst, like, like Poncho. So God is a God of, uh, who loves, who is compassionate, merciful. He's a God of truth and justice. And there's many principles we could distill out of these commands. Worshiping God, protecting people, valuing life, taking responsibility, pursuing sexual purity, caring for the needy, pursuing truth and justice. So many basic principles from the Ten Commandments that God was helping Israel apply in their day in, day out. On a practical level, they had been in Egypt and they needed to learn these things and not imitate what they had seen because they had horrible examples to follow. But yet you can categorize these. Love God, love others. Love God, love others. For Israel, they had been loved greatly. God heard their cry. Think about this. God heard their cry in slavery and he comes to them. And he rescues them. He delivers them. He frees them. He takes them into the desert. He feeds them. He gives them water to drink. He provides for them. They see miraculous, incredible miraculous power. And he takes them and carries them and is carrying them onto the promised land. He provides for them. He gives them his law and he guides them how to apply the law in their particular context. And it can seem that as you read the Old Testament that it's do this, don't do this. Do this, don't do this. I had a funny story once where um, uh, a family was telling me that they caught their son one night sitting in his bedroom before bed, turning the pages of the Bible he could barely read. He was saying, do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. You know, it's, all he thought, it's what he thought the scripture said. Uh, and sometimes it can feel like that. And maybe you think that's what we just did. <laughs> But a lot of times we can miss the one who is behind it all, uh, the one who rescued, the one who delivered, the lawgiver, the one who displayed his power in sending his son for you and I so that we could have life through faith in him. So how should we respond to this, knowing this? We need to look to Jesus. We need to look to the one who loved perfectly who did his father's will perfectly and showed us what perfect love looked like. He loved us to the very end. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You see, because of Jesus' work, we are actually enabled to love God and love others. 
Don't get lost in all the to-dos and all the laws as if it's a checkbox. But rather, be excited and be encouraged that he took you, remember, out of all side to be his own, setting his love on you, doing a work in your heart through his Holy Spirit so that you can love him and love others. We are called to love God and to love others. And as followers of Christ, we need to hear the call in this passage today in light of all that he's done, in light of all that he is. Remember what Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We'll evidence ourselves that we love him by keeping his commandments. Remember, if you're a follower of Christ, you are his beloved. That means you are loved. And we are called to live holy lives for him by loving him and loving others. Let's pray. Father, this morning, being seeing these laws, seeing your care, seeing how much you do love and care for your people, it is a reminder yet again that you care so much. You care about the day in, day out. You care about us being able to follow your commands, being able to reflect you in our world. Father, we want to be mirrors, mirrors that reflect you to the, in this world. We want to be people that move out from here and, and do things to and for you, pursuing truth and justice and, and love and care and, and purity. Father, I pray that you would help us. We have been loved. Will you help us move out from here and to love you all the more and to love one another? Thank you for our time of worship this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name.